Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Welcome to a very special edition of Social Flight Live for EAA's Spirit of Aviation Week. And this program is brought to you by Avidyne, who's made all of this possible. We have a very special guest for today's program. Robert DeLaurentis is here. Robert has just recently landed from his flight from pole to pole, in this case now doing the North Pole side of his adventure. And, uh, you know, I met Robert way back. Uh, must have been 2016 for the first time, a truly amazing individual, an author, an educator, a very successful businessman, and someone who has uh, made it their life's work to to provide a, a really different view, I think, of aviation and, uh, and a, a oneness uh, of how that can communicate with society as a whole, which is recognized in both his books of uh, Zen Pilot, Flying Through Life, uh, as well as the fact that he named his aircraft citizen of the world. Robert, thank you so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live. It's great to be with you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on your show. So, you know, I want to go all the way back to the beginning, but I have to start where you are right now because you are uh, in a hotel room in Anchorage, Alaska. Is that correct? Yes, I'm in Anchorage. I landed in Fairbanks, but uh, a few days later after we finished our filming for our docuseries, we moved on to Anchorage and we're continuing uh, the filming right now. So this latest part of your epic adventure was the North Pole. It started with the, the South Pole, but this is the pole to pole adventure that you've done. Tell us what you just completed and, uh, uh, and then we can go back. I just completed a, a flight from Karuna, Sweden, which is in the north of Sweden, northern tip to the uh, true North Pole, the magnetic North Pole, the North Pole of inaccessibility, and then my intention was to go to Prudhoe Bay, but it was um, weathered in, so I continued on to Fairbanks. Luckily, you know, the citizen of the world's got some fantastic range, so it was uh, easy to continue on, just another hour and a half. Had a tailwind of close to 100 knots, so I was doing 343 knots across the ground at one point, which is about 390 miles an hour, almost 400 miles an hour out of turboprops, pretty impressive. Wow, that is, that is, and and define some of those terms, please, because uh, I know uh, a lot of people, including myself, don't necessarily understand the distinction between some of those different points when you talk about the North Pole. Sure, the true North Pole is the axis, you know, that the Earth rotates on, so the, the top part, and then the magnetic, you know, there's a molten core of the Earth, so the magnetic pole is shifting, and I believe every 700 years or so, it shifts completely. Um, and then the North Pole of inaccessibility is sort of the, if, if you took all the landmass around, you know, the North Atlantic and you found the absolute center, then that would be it. It's the most remote place that you could get to given those different landmasses. Wow, that's fascinating. And, and you went to basically all those points and you navigated to all of those points as part of your journey from beginning in Sweden at this point? 
Right, right. And, you know, the South Pole to do those opposite points is uh, more difficult. At the North Pole, they're within about 200 nautical miles of each other. So it was relatively easy, you know, to add the uh, second two magnetic and inaccessible. Wow. Now, what I know you're, you're navigating as you're doing this. What are you seeing outside the cockpit during this this adventure? You know, you're reaching these very critical points. It's not like climbing Everest where you're at the peak of one mountain and there's no question about what that point is. What does it look like when you're hitting these points? You know, just as an aside, I, um, I'm a member of the Explorers Club and I was carrying Flag 44 and it has been to Everest and to the South and North Pole and the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So. <laughs> um, that sort of spirit was with me. Um, so we made a bit of a compromise, right? If you want to see a lot over the North Pole, you're going to leave in April. But if you want it to be uh, safe with respect to temperatures, then the middle of July when I did it was probably the safest time. Because at the altitudes the citizen of the world flies, uh, in this case about twenty-nine to 30,000, depending on the part of the flight, you know, the temperatures get very, very cold. And fuel, Jet A1, gels at minus 47. And over the South Pole, the temperatures were 13 degrees colder than that. So they were at minus 60. So there was a risk there of the fuel gelling and losing both engines. And we have a very elaborate system to heat the fuel in the plane. But in this case, I wanted to minimize my risk, uh, waited to the warmest time of the year. And the problem with that, though, is there's clouds. There's a lot of clouds. Uh, and I would say for about 95% of the flight, I had clouds, you know, a solid cloud layer with no real reference to which way I was going. But as luck would have it, as I crossed over the uh, three different poles, I could see just a little bit of the earth between the clouds. And I don't know if that's because of the rotation of the earth or if I was just lucky. I really considered it a gift, you know, because yeah. to fly for 10 and a half, 11 hours, uh, not be able to see a whole lot is a little frustrating. But right. through through the broken clouds, uh, I could see uh, ice and water. Hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, you saw a big splotch of ice that you could maybe put it down on. It was little little sections. So if you were going down, you were going down in icy water. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's really amazing. And, and what type of contact do you have during this trip with the outside world? Well, you know, I had prepared in uh, several ways to remain in contact with the rest of the world. Um, you know, you go from VHF comms over Svalbard, Norway, which is just to the north of Karuna, Sweden, and that extended for about two hours. And then after that, uh, the intention was to shift my HF radio. And on the trip, I've had some problems with the HF radio. The uh, propagation is not very good during daylight hours. And then my antenna is a little bit short. When it was put on, it could have been rigged slightly differently. And I've had use of it maybe uh, once or twice you know, during the flight, but I've been flying mostly during daylight hours. So I had a satellite phone uh, and I was able to call Oceanic Control, except I couldn't understand what they were saying and I'm sure they couldn't understand what I was saying. So the uh, only other way to communicate was via my inReach uh, Explorer, um, which was provided to me by the sat phone store. So I could text satellite text or email different people. 
And my last ditch effort had I needed, you know, help would have been to text, Hey, am I on the right heading? You know, 10 degrees left, 10 degrees right. And then I would typically get a response every 15 minutes. Now, when I crossed over those three poles um, on the track, on the inReach Explorer, it did not show the, you know, 20, 30 degree deviation. So it wasn't a very precise way to navigate. That would have been, you know, last ditch effort. Mm. Um, and as my equipment failed, um, you know, I referenced my iPad, which seemed to be pretty solid the entire way. So wow. surprisingly. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing, the thing that was challenging about the North Pole, um, you know, I knew I was going to lose my, my gear, a lot of it. Uh, I lost um, uh, some of it over the South Pole for about 10 or 15 minutes. But over the North Pole, that continued on for five hours. Wow. So, you know, I was doing a lot of hand flying at uh, 29,000 feet. And um, I really <clears throat> didn't get the stuff back. Until I was over Alaska, which was really speaking of losing equipment, it looks like we uh, we may have lost your internet to a guy that's on the board of Iridium, and uh, it was a little perplexing to him, you know, why that was happening because they had some Robert, we uh, we lost your audio there for a minute. Is it back? You want me to unplug and plug here? Hello? No, no, you're good now. You're back. Okay. Do you want me to say anything over? Or? No, no. I think uh, okay. so. So basically, it sounds like you were you were plagued with uh, a lot of failures that included a five hour uh, uh, time at which uh, you really lost your systems. In, north of that and and you said some of that was to be expected some period of that right it wasn't that the systems were bad in any way because you know when i got in the proper uh position uh then all of a sudden everything came back online so i know a lot of it was just not having a satellite signal the thing right. that really surprised me is my adahars the attitude heading and reference system mm -hmm. failed for the first time both of the systems since I've had the plane for about three years. Wow. So I'm still trying to figure out why that happened. Nobody had told me to expect anything like that. And as soon as that goes, you know, then your autopilot goes and you don't wow. have a heading. And, you know, being over the North Pole, and if, if you look at a, a globe or a map, it's not like there's an easy place to divert to when you're at the North Pole because you're almost at that center, you know, over the uh, open ocean. So, um, yeah, you know, for five hours, that was a long time not to have um, a solid heading. Wow. And and even your backup systems, uh, uh, they obviously gave you attitude information, but they weren't you weren't able to hook your autopilot onto them. So that left you hand flying for all that time. Yeah, what happened was I started shutting systems down and then restarting them, hoping that I could get them back. Sometimes that obviously works. But um, with the Adahars, uh, it takes two minutes of steady time for it to reinitialize. And with the plane flying and bouncing a little bit, that was, you know, impossible. Right. So I thought that was, you know, part of the, the problem. 
But then again, once I got over Alaska, everything came back online. And uh, in a blog I did for AOPA, I, I referenced like the naughty school, school kid, you know, who's playing around with the teachers out of the classroom. And then as, as soon as the teacher comes back, everybody's an angel, you know? They know they're being watched. As soon as you came back over Alaska, everything wakes up like, I don't know, we were here for you. I don't know what you saw. Yeah, we've been here the entire time. What's wrong with you? <laughs> we were just testing you. You need some stories. That's right. It makes for a good book, that's for sure. Amazing, amazing. So that obviously must have been the toughest challenge during that time is, uh, is the, in terms of the pucker factor in dealing with, with all that loss. Yeah, I was uh, concerned because, uh, you know, I thought, wow, I could be doing circles out here and I'm not even aware of it, you know. Um, right. And five hours is a long time to be in that sort of zone of confusion is what I call it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it worked out okay in the end. Um, wow. Yeah. Not How far, what kind of deviation did you, do you think you had by the time you came in to where you were expecting to be uh, and your avionics came, really came back to life? Um, I, you know, not a, not a ton, maybe 10 degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, keep in mind, I had a directional gyro that would work for a time, right? It has the metal ball spinning at 15,000 RPMs yep. and, uh, but that degrades over time. By right. the time I figured out, you know, that the, uh, the iPad was going to be a good backup. Um, it seemed, you know, to be somewhat reliable. So I went with that. Now, your aircraft is a citizen of the world. Uh, it's a turbo commando that's been highly modified that you used for the trip. Uh, and you, you mentioned fuel, you mentioned avionics, some other things. Take us through a little bit about how you prepared and how you prepared the aircraft for the trip. Um, I understand you use biofuels. Yes, so we used uh, biofuels for the first time over the North and South Pole ever, in the history of man or woman. <clears throat> so we're very proud of that because our mission is one planet, one people, one plane. And it's environmentally responsible to be using biofuels. And some people will say, you know, well, you were burning fuel when you could have been using electric power. Well, you know, the batteries aren't to the point where they can be used for that distance. So we're doing the best we can, you know, right now. Um, the citizen of the world is a story unto itself. It's really quite a wonder when you look at that aircraft. Um, 1983, a Turbine Commander 900, and we basically modified every system that we could that would get us increased range, distance, and speed. So what that involved was the uh, Honeywell TPE 331-10T uh, engines uh, were refurbished right before I left. They had <clears throat> maybe about 100 hours on them, and Honeywell had upgraded some of the parts. So we were getting remarkable fuel efficiency out of those engines. If you compare it to a Pratt & Whitney engine, maybe on a PC-12, that engine takes 63 gallons an hour and produces about 1,150 horsepower. Each of my engines produce 1,150 horsepower, but they only burn 25.6 gallons. So less than half per engine. And if wow. you add those together, it's still better than that one PC-12 uh, engine. So you have remarkably efficient Predator drone engines is what they're used on. Um, and then MT Propeller built me some custom five-bladed nickel-tip scimitar composite props. So, you know, faster climb, uh, faster startup, lighter, um, slightly better cruise performance. 
So now you're mating that engine to a very efficient prop. And then this version of the Turbine Commander was built by Gulfstream. So they put a Gulfstream wing on the plane, which uh, increased the wingspan by about 10 feet to 52 feet and quarter inch. So now you have a remarkable, you know, long, thin wing, which is really good at high altitude. And then you marry that to a very large fuselage, which is where we put the fuel tanks and heated the fuel. So we added uh, six fuel tanks to the citizen of the world for a total of 10. And, you know, then down into the details, um, ceramic coating to make the plane slip, slipperier. I added a Peter Schiff environmental system, which instead of taking bleed air from the engines and cooling it and putting the contaminated air into the cockpit of the plane, it takes the bleed air, spins a turbo, which takes outside air and compresses it and puts it into the cabin. So you're breathing non-contaminated bleed air. And that system saves about uh, 100 pounds and it gives you more bleed air so the plane can go faster. That's wow. part of the way we got some of the increased speeds. Uh, it's a complicated system, but um, remarkable. It has you know, a lot of backup systems to it. And it gave us an increased heat capacity to heat that fuel inside the cabin before we pushed it out into the uh, inboard tank and then a heat exchanger, you know, fuel pump and all that. Um, wow. And then, you know, of course, the avionics suite, Avidyne was a big part of that. Uh, I needed a system where if it got so cold inside the cabin, I could use buttons, but also I had the advantage of the touchscreen. The other thing that the Avidyne system did for me was that I was using infrared. So Max Viz gave us an infrared system and the Avidyne IFD 550 was able to display that on the screen. And with the requirements for RVSM for my plane, reversed vertical separation minima, which means you can fly at 35,000 feet yep. <clears throat> instead of the 28 that the plane was you know, originally designed to fly at. So there were requirements for that. And uh, Avidyne offered me a solution where I could display it without adding another computer screen or display screen in my uh, cabin. Wow. Um, and then I mentioned RBSM, which is a critical component, you know, higher, faster, further. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a lot of small modifications. So uh, there was a doorstep on the plane that was usually a source for pressurization leaks. Um, we sealed that in. And a lot of movement of uh, components on the uh, panel. So we uh, grouped all the uh, temperature gauges together and then the trim gauges together. We cut out a section of a pedestal between the pilot and co-pilot seat so that I could have more movement inside the cabin. A lot of USB ports. Um, if you go to the website, uh, pole to pole flight, and the, the two is TO, you'll see uh, modifications to the citizen of the world. Yeah. HF radio was another one. Was, um, were, were many of these changes done under by putting the aircraft into experimental category? No, it was not required, actually. We we're fortunate in that respect. So all of them, including the engine changes, were all done under like STCs or things that uh, made, it, uh, made them all legal? They're all legal. Um, we got a field approval for the prop since it was the first time ever that they put that five-bladed prop on uh, Turbine Commander. Uh, eventually, the manufacturer went and got an STC. But um, yeah, and you know, there's documentation through the FAA for the fuel tanks. And since I was carrying biofuels, it was important to keep those separate 
from, you know, the regular fuel. Right. And um, we also had a series of metal tanks and rubber bladders. And originally I had intended um, to have all metal tanks, but you can't get, <clears throat> you know, the required amount of fuel into a, a cabin that's that particular shape. So we had to use some bladders as well. Now it created a very complicated system with over, well not over, but 20 valves that had wow. to be properly aligned. And it was suggested that I take somebody along just to handle fuel transfer on the flight. But I wanted to do it by myself. Um, and I actually made a mistake at one point and misaligned two valves. So the pressurization in the cabin, if you imagine it pushing down on the fuel, pushes it into the wings, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I had the vents closed. So instead of pushing the fuel through, it was pushing on the tank. And we had uh, two tanks implode uh, or burst uh, oh during God. polar circumnavigation. Uh, luckily, it happened on the ground when I was fueling, once in uh, Dakar, Senegal, and uh, the second time in Malmo, Sweden. But by the time I did the North Pole leg, we'd pulled one of those tanks out and repaired the other one. And then the remaining two metal tanks. Um, I didn't fill them up, you know, completely. So I didn't want to stress them out. And then we relied on uh, the rubber bladder that was inside the um, pressure chamber because we had one in the uh, luggage compartment as well that required electric pumps to transfer fuel. Very complicated system. Very wow. complicated. That's amazing. And and this all follows on your soul, your southern pole uh, uh, adventure as well. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, I wanted to do that first because that was the hardest part of the trip. And I didn't want to have that hanging over me, you know, for what I thought was going to be four to five months, which is now going to turn out to be nine months. Um, and what I knew from my first equatorial circumnavigation back in 2015 was that the plane degrades in performance over time. So I wanted to do the South Pole leg when I was fresh and when the plane was fresh. Um, yeah, that was an 18-hour flight. <clears throat> extremely, extremely uh, challenging and scary, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, how do you stay awake, alert, and competent for that length of time? That's a great question. The answer is fear. Fear <laughs> keeps you awake the entire time. I tried doing a couple micro-naps at about 16 hours, but um, that was about the time I was getting over the Drake Passage, and that's probably the worst spot on the planet for weather. In fact, mm -hmm. a week before, there was a Chilean C-130 with uh, 36 people that went down there. Oh, my God. <laughs> I never recovered them. And, uh, you know, that was just, like I said, a week before. And I was sort of weighing my chances of survival, you know, because that was um, a C-130 with, you know, four engines. I had two. Uh, they had two pilots. It was just me. They had experience over, you know, Antarctica. I had none. Their flight was two hours. Um, my flight was 18 hours. They had great weather. I had, you know, average weather. Oh my um, God. So, you know, <clears throat> that was a stressor prior to departing. And I remember when I left uh, Ushuaia, Argentina, because I was coming back to that point, I stacked all my personal belongings neatly in my room, put my home address on there in case I had to send them home. And I assessed my chances for survival at about 50%. And that oh was, God. you know, like not 50%, you know, all, 
I'll try and I'll, if I don't make it, I'll just come back. That was like 50% I'll be alive in, you know, 18 hours. And when you add together all the challenges of the South Pole, uh, you know, navigation, distance, fuel gelling, snow blindness, which took out a commercial plane that went down there a number of years ago. I think it was an L-1011, might be wrong, but it's, you know, that basic uh, size of plane. Um, then you have the pilot fatigue, a um, few places to land, right? Because there's aircraft and most of the runs that are down there are what's called white ice, which means you need skis. Blue ice is when all the air is pushed out of the snow and you can actually land a wheeled vehicle on blue ice. But um, yeah, so there weren't a lot of places to land. Very, very stressful flight. Hardest of my life. My God. So take us back then. I mean, you're talking about bringing yourself to the point of, as you just said, 50-50 chance of what, whether you will be surviving the next 18 hours of your life. And right. it takes something pretty special to arrive there and a mission to be on as a human being. Um, take me back to how this all started from before you, when you decided to, to, to take this approach uh, to start reaching to these heights, um, whether it be your first circumnavigation or, or, or going towards your second one, what drove you to this? Well, uh, in 2014, I wrote a book called Flying Through Life, and I had just gotten an advanced graduate degree in spiritual psychology, and I had uh, taken the 19 of those concepts and used them in my business, tripled its size, and was going out into the world because I didn't want to just talk about it. You know, there are a lot of people uh, we felt making promises and not delivering or just talking about things. So we wanted to go out into the world, make our best effort and see what we could do to change the world in a positive way. And the expression we came up with was the impossibly big dream, you know, pursuing that. So after the equatorial circumnavigation in 2015, uh, we felt that it was important to, again, pursue the impossibly big dream. And what that was, was, you know, not doing the circumnavigation again along the equator, but over the top. And um, we thought with our experience, uh, with the team that I had, with more sponsors, <clears throat> um, that it would take the same amount of time to do a little more challenging flight. But <clears throat> as it turns out, the um, I grab some water here. <clears throat> as it turns out, the South Pole uh, is about three times more difficult. So the original six months. I got delayed twice more and I ended up taking 18 months to prepare for this flight. And that wasn't, you know, Hey, I've got a spare day this week. I'm going to work on it. That was, you know, six days a week, get up in the morning, work all day, and then, you know, start it over. So, um, yeah, the South pole is a different animal, so much more challenging. Now, your, your first circumnavigation was the, the first person to solo fly uh, at Piper Malibu um, uh, Mirage around the world. And obviously, you've, uh, you've upgraded your aircraft. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you, I mean, reflect back a little bit on, on the differences between that first flight and that aircraft and what, you've, what, what you're flying now with Citizen yeah. of the World. The defining moment in that flight um, 
was the engine failing in a single engine piston plane 14,000 feet over the Strait of Malacca and, you know, dead sticking 19.6 nautical miles into Kuala Lumpur International with uh, oil spraying on the 1400 degree exhaust, trailing smoke, 600 pounds of avgas, highly flammable avgas in the cabin with me. And, um, you know, having an extra 300 feet of altitude as I landed at the international airport with, you know, six flights diverted. And that was the beginning of Zen Pilot, Flight of Passion and the Journey Within. So after that, I thought um, I need to get a more reliable plane. And, you know, turbines are said to be uh, 100 times more reliable. And then with two turbine engines, it's, you know, a factor of that. Uh, what I didn't realize is that, yes, the turbines are 100% more reliable because everything's spinning in the same direction. But everything else on the engine is just like anything else in aviation, right? It has about the same reliability. So, um, and then Charles Lindbergh, of course, was famous for saying, when you have a twin engine plane, you have twice the chance of an engine failure. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, you know, I wanted to do it with something that I believed would be more reliable. Uh, and that was citizen of the world. Now there's also another saying that when you replace a major component, um, it has a chance of failing in the first 10% and the last 10% of his life. So think about taking a night aircraft and um, putting these very powerful engines on there. Um, originally, those engines, I think, are rated at 715 horsepower, and mine bench tested at uh, 1150. So, you know, you have a lot of horsepower. Uh, you're increasing the pressurization because you're flying higher. You're flying faster. You're carrying, you know, fuel, extra fuel. So it's an enormous amount of stress on the plane. We actually had a windshield crack just before I left at 30,000 feet. Uh, some fuel controllers uh, froze up and we had to have those rebuilt. Um, we thought we were going to be able to repair them, but they had to be pulled off, repaired, you know, parts made. So that's, you know, some of the reasons for these delays. But um, the cool thing that happened is as soon as I started on the trip, everything started working really well. And um, I think it's because a plane likes to be flown, but we just, in a way, we got lucky because we had finally gotten to that sweet spot where everything was working well together. And, you know, if you can get um, my, uh, you know, without wind, it flies at about, you know, when it's lighter on fuel, about 305 to a 318 knots true. Mm -hmm. It's really fast for a turboprop. Yeah. And then we had talked about, you know, with the help of Mother Nature, you get even more out of it. It's become a very modernized plane. And, um, you know, it, it looks cool. Those, those five-bladed props are mean. Um, <laughs> it draws a crowd, you know, when you land. And, um, you know, it's got the performance to back. Because I yeah. don't know of any single or twin-engine turboprop that's gone 18 hours. So, yeah. you know, those are records right there. Well, a Turbo Commander is just a, it's an iconic aircraft. It's gorgeous. Yours in particular, of course, is, is gorgeous with all the, uh, the, uh, uh, the sim symbology on the side of, of everywhere that you've been and what the mission is. Someone sees Citizen of the World pull up on a ramp. I can imagine you drop something, go take a look. <laughs> well, you know, there's a joke that the, uh, you know, it's very loud plane. So people cover their ears when you're, you know, pulling up and they call that the uh, Turbine Commander salute. <laughs> when you cover up your ears 
Um, but, you know, to look at the plane on the ramp, um, I compare that to the Malibu Mirage, which was a very elegant plane, right? Really long wings, uh, sort of thin, strong body. Um, but the Turbine Commander is like a bull. You know, it's mm. muscular. Uh, it just looks mean, like it's ready to take on the poles in the world. And it certainly has in a, in a very elegant way, maybe I should say, you know? Yeah. So you mentioned, of course, your, your books and, and you've done quite a bit of work that has to do with this philo- philosophical approach to life through both uh, the uh, books, uh, Zen Pilot and also Flying Through Life. Tell us a little bit about, about that and the, the philosophy that it sounds like changed your life and that you're helping change others. Yeah, let me also add, uh, Jeff, that there's a third book we released while I've been on the road called The Little Plane That Could. Mm. And it's a children's book designed for kids about three to five. And we did that because uh, general aviation is very interested in high school kids because they're close to becoming pilots. But when I was in uh, Africa, I remember um, I was with a mentor of mine and we were walking through a shopping center to get some supplies. And we walked by a restaurant. There was a mother, father, and a little girl. um, And she was pointing up in the air like this. And there was a plane going over. And the parents weren't paying any attention at all, right? They were talking. And I, I realized that people are born pilots. You know, they're born curious like that. So we needed to really work on helping to inspire kids at that age as well. And the De Laurentiis Foundation is not for profit. So we don't have to make money. We certainly would like to make money because then we can put it back into aviation. But um, that plane was just released. And here in um, Anchorage, we just got some interest from the uh, museum store and it's being sold on Amazon. We're getting good response. We're very happy about that. There's also a fourth book that I'm working on. I should say the little plane that can, um, or the little plane that could was written with my, uh, mentor, Susan Gilbert. So it's a, a joint effort. Um, my, uh, next book, which I'm about two thirds of the way completed with is called peace pilot to the ends of the earth and beyond. And it's mm-hmm. about this trip and our docu-series, <clears throat> excuse me, is also named the same thing. So that'll be released probably in about, but uh, I mentioned, you know, Flying Through Life was about uh, pursuing the impossibly big dream. That's the first book and sharing those concepts with people so that they could, you know, pursue their impossibly big dreams. And then Zen Pilot picks up at the engine failure over the Strait of Malacca. And that's about the lessons that you can learn about life from flying. And it has a lot of Zen moments in it. And those are the lessons that, you know, I'm learning along that circumnavigation. So to give you an idea, um, when the engine failed over the Strait of Malacca, your first thought is, oh, my God, this plane is trying to kill me. Right. And then later you realize that the plane actually kept me alive. Mm. Because there was a lot of possible outcomes in that moment. Right. Uh, there was the destruction of the plane, my death. Another possibility was destruction of the plane. I'm injured. Another possibility is destruction of the plane. I walk away. And then I say I hit the cosmic lottery because the plane didn't get destroyed and I survived it. And if it's a cosmic negotiation, you ask for the best, but you usually end up somewhere in the center. Mm. So, you know, there were these moments uh, along the way that um, I thought taught me about life. And I think you know, pilots are given this unique opportunity. They're up in the air. They're in that silence. They're connected to nature. 
they're having an adventure. Sometimes they're with their friends. So there's, you know, that magical connection with other human beings and you're exploring the planet. So, you know, really great opportunity to learn in a plane. And we're excited about uh, Peace Pilot to the Ends of the Earth because it really weaves um, the story, which is about connecting the South Pole and the North Pole, you know, the two places on the planet where peace has always existed, and then everybody in between. And it comes at a time when the world is divided, you know, polarized. And connecting those two points sort of negates the, the opposite charges and, you know, neutralizes that. So it's really an opportunity to bring the world together. And the plane is the vehicle for our global mission. We carry uh, scientific experiments from NASA and also the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. We talked about the biofuels. And then, you know, because of the generosity of 90 aviation uh, sponsors and supporters, we have the latest aviation safety and technology, uh, you know, that's available on the planet, ADSB in and out, touchscreen, synthetic vision. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in the cockpit. And uh, I'll be doing five simulations for Redbird. Uh, the flight simulator company when i get back i've already started to write those but the idea is to make aviation exciting for kids you know mm. we're competing with their home computers and their video games but you put somebody into the cockpit of the citizen of the world which is you know loaded with the best avionics in the world and you send them out into the world over the poles you know, you've got an opportunity that's uh pretty cool to inspire and excite new pilots and so, um aspiring pilots yeah it's it, i've always been absolutely uh, uh, impressed and 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 really thankful for the work that you're doing and it does seem to blend uh this this work to improve the planet the world around us but there's a very personal side of it as well in in helping people through your own story and your own experience and how they can be successful in their own personal life as well yeah, you know, the funny thing, Jeff, was uh, when I made it over the South Pole, I, I honestly believe that that flight broke me. Um, I, never, um, I never realized it was going to be that hard, for one. And when I finished, I thought, thank God, the hardest part of this trip is over. It's going to be uh, what I refer to as a global victory lap. <laughs> and my cinematographer laughs at me now because um, he knows it's not been anything close to that. You know, you get broken open and then you're ready to receive all the amazing lessons and gifts, you know, that come with challenges along the way. So that was really the true start of the flight was, you know, getting broken over that South Pole. And then I honestly thought the North Pole was going to be relatively easy. I hate to use that word, but in comparison to the South Pole, because um, things were just going so perfectly, you know, as the, the flight drew closer. Um, you know, the waypoints were working. Um, the plane wasn't leaking fuel or oil or oxygen or nitrogen. Uh, I had relatively good weather, you know, on top of the cloud layer. Um, the Customs and Border Patrol made an exception saying that I could land at Prudhoe Bay, which is the point the Corona Sweden on my uh, And initially they had said, no, we're going to arrest you, fine you, and impound the plane if you land there. So, you know, as things got closer, things fell into place, but then, you know, then there was the challenges over the poles. So, yeah. um, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen. I always pray for what I call ease and grace. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be challenging. And, um, you know, with the coronavirus hitting when I was in Spain, that, that stopped us in our tracks, really, because right. I was flying, you know, the citizen of the world at between 340 and 390 miles per hour. Then I got to Spain on the bullet train and I was slowed to 150 miles an hour in my rental car down to 70. Um, and then the coronavirus was a, a stop, you know. Right. And along the way, I was realizing I was missing so much by flying so high and so fast. So, you know, there's been so many opportunities for learning. I like to say that with every challenge comes an opportunity. And our opportunity has been to, you know, educate the world, hopefully, about the fact that uh, cooperation is probably a better way to resolve these problems than competition. Right. Right. So I don't know about you, but. Since I was a little boy, I was always encouraged to compete and, you know, try and set myself apart. And, you know, technically we're thinking we're better. But if you go to a place like Sweden, where I was for about a month, they're encouraged not to compete until they're 12 years old. And then even the airline pilots are instructed not to set themselves apart. But what you end up have happening is that everybody's working together. Right. And I found that when I got to Sweden, there was... Uh, couple guys, Johan and Axel, that were pilots that I was introduced to. And they helped me with the fuel tanks. They helped me get biofuels. Uh, they helped me with lodging. Just so many things. I yeah. mean, they really opened up, you know, in support of the mission. So I think I've, I've learned that the solution to our problems as a planet are not going to be uh, solved by one person one company or one country it's you know the one the oneness of the planet that will solve these problems yeah. and you know we all come from the same cosmic matter right the big bang nobody disputes that so um you know we're more similar than we are different and that's a lot of what this trip is about is showing that we all care about the same things and as we do the docuseries and we're interviewing people that are you know former lieutenant governors of Alaska, uh, dog sled mushers, uh, Zulu rangers in Africa. Everybody wants the exact same thing. It's family, you know, love, compassion, health, safety, financial uh, security. Uh, they're all curious, you know. Right. So when we focus on those things, then it's easy to see, hey, you know, everybody around the world is similar in that way. And we're not you know, defining things as black and white or religion or politics or, you know, this person has more money than this person. So I right. think that is, you know, the the message of our trip. And that's the world peace part, you know, the connection. And this plane is the common thread that's connecting all the people and the poles and the, you know, 20, I think we're at about 22, 23 countries right now uh, on six continents. So it's a metaphor for, for life. And I believe, yeah. you know, our solution moving forward. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful message. Um, uh, I believe in it passionately. It does certainly speak to me. Uh, I mean, everything that we've done, I've dedicated my life with socialflight.com and the mobile apps to bringing people together in general aviation, to supporting our community, our little community, and then what we can do to help inspire people that way. And I think what we've seen, and I've, I've heard from you and from so many others, that uh, when, the, when the crisis hit, when the pandemic hit, um, we do, everyone has to pivot. And 
you um, you have a choice as to how you do that. And, you know, we chose to try to use online to bring as many people together to start this show of Social Flight Live to try to inspire people, and let people hear from people like you as part of it. And we've gotten that same message that basically has shown that times of crisis are times of opportunity, um, both to better ourselves and to make connections and reassess. And for many people to actually move forward and, and improve their lives, even financially in ways that they never thought possible because these are turning points and, and chances to, to, to take a different look at things. And it sounds like that's, that's what you've done and that's what you've continued to encourage. Yeah, you, you said that very eloquently, Jeff. And what, what I uh, came to realize, and I wrote a blog about this, is, you know, moving into the coronavirus, a lot of people might have defined themselves by, you know, their business. Uh, I've got a nice house. I wear nice clothes. I've got cool friends. But, you know, that's not really who we are. And when we were locked up and quarantined, we started going, oh, well, you know, I'm the person who was compassionate for my friend who had the coronavirus or was struggling. I'm the brother or sister that maybe was maybe able to make inroads in a relationship with another family member, you know, because I was seeing them in a different light. I was the person who sent some supplies over to my neighbor who wasn't able to make it to the store. And that's sort of redefining ourselves. Whereas um, you know, before we're sort of what I was describing before is more ego driven. So this particular blog was about the death of the ego and redefining who we are as humans. Mm -hmm. And when the coronavirus doesn't distinguish between somebody in Africa or Egypt or Europe, or, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you have, who you are, you know, it just, right. it affects everybody equally. So then you go, well, maybe we are you know, all the same, yes. at least in that regard. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, struggles. I was very fortunate to be living in a monastery for a time in Montserrat, Spain, and I had an opportunity to talk with one of the monks. And I said, hey, is this, you know, cosmic punishment for the planet? Because getting hit pretty hard, you know? And he, he sort of, he almost, you know, he didn't laugh, but he, he was amused. And he said, no, 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 this is, um, this is the natural cycle of things because disease and viruses, illness have been affecting humans as long as they've been on the planet. And we believe that technology will always save us, but humans are mortal. And, you know, someday we're all going. And this is just another one of those opportunities to learn. And we're, you know, obviously talking about some of the lessons. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be learning what, what I, I can. It sounds like you are as well, but in the process, I, I hope that it makes the world a better planet. And there's I think a lot it of does. ways. Yeah, it's very, very well said. Um, my fiance Heidi likes to call it the gifts of COVID. That there are certain things that, um, uh, in the midst of, of a lot of, uh, of terror, a lot of terrible things, there are certain things that turn upward or open doors that we didn't know, whether that be interpersonal or whether that be in the world or whether that be in, in, in someone's own uh, positive future in business or otherwise, um, it, it's great. And I really do appreciate your story it is remarkable. 
um, I look forward to seeing you again in person at some point and, um, uh, and, and certainly we'll be following you for a long time to come. Um, for everyone watching, uh, please, uh, you can follow uh, everything that Robert's doing. Robert, if you could give us the best websites for everyone to be uh, following you. Sure. Um, it's www.pole, so P-O-L-E, two, T-O, pole again, flight. So pole to pole flight.com. And of course, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube. It's kind of a lot of different places. Well, Robert, thank you so, so much for being a guest on Social Flight Live. To everyone out there, be sure to pick up one of Robert's uh, books. You'll get started in that, uh, Zen Pilot Flying Through Life, uh, and uh, the other books that are coming out, and including the children's one, uh, will be just uh, a, a great way to, um, to spend some time and, and to get a different view on life. And so... For Social Flight, I'm Jeff Simon. Thanks again to Avidine for sponsoring this series. Uh, it's been really, really wonderful. Blue skies. Mm -hmm.